Hello, my name is Ashley Balin, and welcome to Baby Puppy, the parenting podcast for anyone raising a human or fur baby. Now, before I start getting angry emails from people in the dog community or parenting community about how different raising a dog is from a child, trust me, I know, I know, I'm not saying they're the same at all. But as a professional dog trainer and behavior consultant and a mother, there are a startling number of similarities. I've applied strategies from my dog training education and experience to parenting with great success and vice versa. From the early days with an infant or puppy, dealing with teething, crate or crib training, socialization and language acquisition, to nutrition, anxiety, coping mechanisms, independence, confidence building and more, it's impossible to deny a crossover. On each episode of this podcast, we'll explore a different topic and speak with a parenting expert to gain insight, strategies, and advice while comparing them to my experience working with dogs. Join me on this journey to raise confident, empathetic, respectful, happy, and healthy dogs and humans. On this episode, I sat down with sexuality educator and speaker Nadine Thornhill. Nadine is the creator of Save Sex Ed, a YouTube series covering every sex education module in Ontario's 2015 health and physical education curriculum. And she's also a writer and co-host for the acclaimed web series Sex Ed School. We delve into the topic of consent, both as it pertains to dogs and children at various stages of development. Just a couple notes before the episode starts. Firstly, we had some internet connectivity issues, so you might notice a few moments where it cuts off for a second. Sorry about that. And second, Nadine mentions an upcoming workshop that she's hosting. Our chat was recorded at the beginning of December, so that workshop has unfortunately passed, but check out her website at nadinethornhill.com for upcoming events. Now, let's get on with the conversation. Enjoy! start by just thanking you for joining me today and for being so accommodating about having to do this on the phone. Uh, I, you know, I apologize if my voice sounds a little off. My household is currently plagued with whatever, you know, the preschool virus of the day is. So. Of course. Yeah. I <laughs> so bear with understand. Me. I remember those days. So yeah, yeah, whatever you need to do is no problem. I appreciate it. And I also, you know, much prefer to speak in person. I truthfully usually avoid the phone at all costs so but I didn't want to have to reschedule because I really want to talk to you oh thank you well I'm nodding emphatically I have this weird aversion to the phone as well but this is all good okay well maybe yeah. that's something that we can bond over. exactly okay so why don't you just start by introducing yourself what's your name and what you do professionally sure my name is Sorry, let me try that again as I'm squeaking. My name is Nadine Thornhill. I am a sexuality educator and my area of concentration is child and adolescent sexuality, but I actually work mostly with parents and teachers uh, just to make sure that they have, you know, good solid information around sexuality and then also that they have the skills that they need to be able to share that information with the kids and teens in their lives and have really good, open, honest conversations about sex and bodies and relationships, and, all of that stuff. And do you do that through private consultations or classes or do you work through the school system or, or all of the above? Sorry, I missed that question. It cut out for a second. 
Oh, sorry about That's that. Okay. I, I, do you so do you work through one on one consultations with parents or do you work through the school system or through workshops or all of the above? So I I work for myself and I do a lot of workshops. I do a lot of public speaking. I create content. So I have a YouTube channel. And then I do do some one-on-one consultation with parents and also with organizations. And occasionally I will uh, venture into a school and, you know, in a classroom, which is always fun. Do you do you have kids yourself? I do. I have uh, one child who is 12. And a boy or girl? He's a boy. And do you have any dogs, just because it's uh, pertinent to this conversation? Of course. (laughs) I actually have a cat. um, But my plan is that when my uh, child is older and uh, doesn't need so much of my attention, sort of in my like in my planned retirement, I would like to have a dog or maybe even two (laughs) dogs. Yeah. Have you had dogs before? We had a dog years ago. Um, It was a lab pitbull cross and he was lovely yeah pits are actually one of my favorite breeds of dogs it's unfortunate that in our province they're banned yeah yeah okay so in your work as a sex educator what are some of the topics that you commonly cover when you're speaking with children yeah so working with kids uh teach a lot about consent we talk a lot about um Let's see what else. Consent is a big one. We talk about, you know, the very basics of like relationships. So, you know, like what it means to love someone, what it means to treat someone with kindness and compassion. Um, We talk about, you know, the real basics of our bodies. So all of our body parts, including genitals. Um, With older kids, we talk about things like gender identity. Yeah, we talk about relationships. We talk about... Uh, We talk about how bodies change. So we'll talk a little bit about not only puberty, but just the idea that bodies change shapes and they change size and the way they function changes over the course of our lives. So we talk a lot about that as well. So I'm I'm glad that you mentioned consent because that's actually what I'd like to focus a large majority of this conversation on. Uh, So speaking of consent, do I have your consent to go on a tangent for a little moment? Please do. I love a good tangent. Okay. So the conversation about consent is something I find myself discussing often with other parents, you know, as we navigate and approach you know, the topic with our children during different stages of development. But it's also something I discuss frequently with my clients and the public as it pertains to dogs. And for some reason, people view dogs as public property. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, they're deemed so by law. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's this expectation that everyone has the right to touch them with or without permission. And many dog owners also believe that all dogs should be friends, which is also so strange to me. But like, imagine living in a world where every single person stops you on the street to shake your hand and chat and every other person stops you to physically touch you 
issue and conversations are repeatedly interrupted so a stranger can rub your back and like any kind of attempt you offer to dissuade those approaches is ignored and throughout all of this if you begin acting annoyed or defensive you're the one that's labeled reactive or aggressive and you know that's basically a dog's life in a busy city right and like our culture specifically in in urban centers believes that since dogs are perceived as cute that humans have the right to touch them if they're in a public space and if dog owners advocate for their dog and prevent strangers from touching them or if a dog displays body language clearly stating they don't welcome that physical touch both the owner and the dog are considered rude or unfriendly or weird so you know this creates this uncomfortable dynamic that forces dog owners into having to make a decision to either train their dogs into accepting unwelcome attention or to continue to advocate and be judged constantly and you know after having a baby my son's only two and after having a baby, I realized that this is actually very similar for babies and young children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while I was pregnant, I felt that suddenly I was viewed as like a vessel for carrying a child and strangers that would have never paid attention to me previously now felt they had the right to touch me. And then once my baby was born, strangers constantly touched my son without my permission. And, you know, all of this to say, I guess, like, I'm curious to know what your opinion is about what you think it is in our culture that makes people feel that they they have the right to touch babies and dogs, you know, without an invitation or consent and how we can advocate for them without being perceived as rude or antisocial. Well, I think that the issue really stems from the fact that we don't have a consent culture, that we live in a culture where it is very much accepted that there are these sort of hierarchies that, you know, for example, human is, is superior to a dog. Um, you know, an adult is superior to a baby, um, that women, depending on how they present themselves in public, suddenly become public property. And so people who feel that they are superior to, you know, whatever person or creature we're talking to, um, are taught that they are entitled to, you know, that person's attention, to that person's affection, to that person's body. Um, and we see this like all over in society, you know, um, there's a video around tea and consent and it's meant to illustrate how ridiculous it would be if we offered somebody tea and they said, no, I don't want tea. And we just made them have it anyway. (laughs) And, um, it's, it's a really interesting video and, you know, a lot of people really responded well to it. So I salute the creators for making the attempt, but a good friend of mine pointed out, but People will force you to eat or drink things you don't want all the time. You right. you will be at a dinner party or you'll be with friends and they'll offer you, you know, yeah, a glass of tea or wine or they'll serve you something at dinner that you don't particularly want to eat. And oftentimes there's this sort of back and forth where they'll say, oh, but are you sure? Are you sure? Like, I can make you something else. Do you want something else? Or, you know... Sure, like just have the tea, just try it, it's good, try it. Um, So we have a real problem, I think, overall culturally with the idea of simply accepting others' boundaries Um, and also the idea that we don't always have to touch or interact with someone just because we personally find them appealing or attractive or interesting. Um, Something that I talk to parents about actually is using pets and animals 
as teachable opportunities for young children who are learning consent. And so, you know, there's, there's, you know, establishing a boundary verbally or saying like, yes, I want this. No, I don't want this. But, you know, not everyone is verbal. We communicate in all sorts of different ways. And I think you, like, you know, if you have a dog in your family or there's a dog in your neighborhood or even just, you know, coming across dogs, you know, when you're out and about because a lot of children are intrigued by dogs. My child was and still is. Um, to say to a child, you know what? Before you touch that dog, you know, why don't you hold out your hand? So the dog can come to you. Or why don't we pay attention to how the dog is reacting when you're coming towards the dog? Um, you know, are they wagging their tail or is their, is their tail down? You know, are the ears up and perky or are they laid back? You know, what sort of sounds are they making? You can teach children to pay attention to those nonverbal cues because animals are nonverbal. They're never going to say, hey, whoa, personal space, please, um, because they can't. But they still have ways of letting us know if they're comfortable, if they're excited, if they're scared, if they're nervous, if they're anxious. Um, and I think in doing that, it's a way of teaching young children that you want to pay attention to not only what someone might be saying, but also what is their body doing and what is their body telling you. And I think, yeah interactions with animals are a great way to do that. And so if you learn to sort of read the cues of an animal, you can say, you can be like, oh, this dog doesn't really seem into me getting close to it. So maybe I will just leave that dog alone. Or I'm interested in petting the dog. So instead of going up to the dog, I will present my body in a way that is open and inviting. And then if the dog is interested, the dog can come to me. Um, but I don't have to go up to the dog and impose myself on the dog. Um, cause maybe, like you said, maybe the dog's just trying to go for a walk and just wants to sniff some interesting trees right? and is just not into like being petted by you, which is yeah, and, and obviously, you know, obviously there is the exception and there are dogs that would love to be, you know, lavished with attention from every person that crossed their path. But you know, the majority of, of dogs really just, you know, are, are loyal to their family and the close friends that they have and have very little interest in physically interacting with everyone else that they pass they're, by. They're like the rest of us. They're just trying to live. And I find the dogs who are really into having a lot of attention, it's, they're not really ambitious like ambiguous about that at all like no and in fact they're you know just as disrespectful about consent when they're approaching humans <laughs> right as as the humans that approach them constantly like they'll be the dog that will you know go lean on you or rub their body against you or jump on you or yeah. you know be, the, be physical with you yeah but but you know speaking of of body language and i'm i'm glad that you brought that up because really every single time that i have a dog training client regardless of the challenges that they're having the first thing we always talk about is you know to to learn how to understand their own dog's body language so that they can learn to communicate effectively and develop a relationship based in safety, trust, and respect. And, you know, very few people are educated about dog body language and don't know how to look for those subtleties. And, you know, dogs do display very clear body language when they're uncomfortable around people. And, you know, since the general public isn't educated about that body language or they've been conditioned to ignore it for the most part, it becomes our responsibility as, you know, as their owners 
or the representatives to be our dog's voice. And I think the same is true, you know, as you said, with young babies or children when they're pre-verbal or don't yet have the words or confidence to speak for themselves. And, you know, like some of the the subtle signs for dogs of being nervous or uncomfortable is licking lips or yawning or smelling something obsessively or, you know, avoiding eye contact or panting heavily. And I was wondering, you know, if there are specific signs that parents could look for in their young babies or toddlers that display that they're uncomfortable being touched or held other than just crying. Yeah. So with, you know, with infants, you know, when the body sort of starts to go rigid or there's tension in the body, um, if you see the baby sort of pulling back rather than kind of leaning in and snuggling, that can be a sign that the baby's not into being held or they may not be into being held by that person. Um, you know, there is the crying, which is a pretty obvious one. And a lot of babies are fairly unambiguous when they're unhappy, which is the great and challenging thing about babies <laughs> is they do not hold back whatsoever most of the right. time. But a lot of it is similar to the body language you would see in a person of any age. And if you think of your own body language, if somebody went to hug you and you weren't comfortable, um, you know, you think about the things that you would do, you would kind of tend to be a little bit tense. Um, you would kind of try to pull back into your own personal space. Um, you know, things like that, avoiding eye contact, all of those things are signs that somebody is uncomfortable with you. Um, with toddlers and, you know, slightly older children who aren't infants, um, Again, some toddlers, you know, my child, when he was a toddler, had no issue with just saying, like, I don't like this. Stop it. But not every child is like that. Some children are, are shyer. Um, some children are, you know, people pleasers, even at that young age. So again, if you see, you know, the head drop, um, if you see the, the posture kind of draw in, you know, the shoulders draw in, it becomes sort of a more protective stance. If you see that nervous sort of playing with the hair, um, fiddling and tugging at the clothes, shuffling from one foot to another if they're walking or standing, you know, if their voice suddenly drops and becomes very quiet and you get, you know, sort of the mumbling like, hi, okay. You know, that's a sign that the child is not entirely comfortable with you. And we're coming up on the holidays. So this is a time when, you know, we're having a lot of friends and family who are reuniting, who may not have seen each other for a long time. And I'm an aunt. I'm an aunt of, of four amazing nieces, and I don't see them very often. So I'm always very excited when I see my nieces. And, you know, I do want to rush in and hug them right away. And, you know, they all four have different personalities. And I mean, one of them's a teenager, one of them's an adult, but two of them are still children. Um, but I've learned that I really have to gauge how are they reacting because, you know, I'm very excited, but for them, they may not have seen me for several months. And so, you know, diving in right away and doing something as intimate as a hug, especially for a child, can be overwhelming. Um, and so I really try to sort of watch them engage how they are. You know, like I might hold my arms open or I might hold myself in an open position to show that, you know, I would welcome a hug if they want to give me one. Sometimes I'll straight up ask and say, like, can I give you a hug? But I'll also reassure them, like, it's okay if you don't want to right now because some children also feel like, an adult is asking, so I have to. 
Um, and I want them to know that, no, they don't have to, but I also watch for those cues, you know, are they looking me in the eye? Are they running up to greet me? Or are they sort of standing back and hanging behind, you know, their parent or a more familiar grown up, which tells me, okay, they're feeling a bit shy or they're feeling a bit overwhelmed. Um, and in which case I'm like, I can wait, you know, we can do hugs later or we don't have to do hugs at all if they're not into it. Um, but yeah, you really want to pay attention to how a child is responding to you. If they're really just kind of quiet and withdrawn and there's tension or there's fiddling, they're probably feeling a little bit nervous and uneasy. So just, you know, give them a little bit of space and give them a little bit of time to, you know, get comfortable with you and, you know, really let, you know, that reunion take its course and let your relationship in that moment run its natural course rather than trying to force, you know, the hug or the kiss. Um, because I always say a hug or a kiss is meant to demonstrate affection and love and caring. But if somebody doesn't want that hug or kiss, it doesn't feel like love or caring. It just feels like an imposition and it's kind of icky and weird. Yeah, I have. So I, I have so many different thoughts going through my head based on everything that you just said. You know, the, the first is that I'm thinking about, you know, my childhood and the way I grew up and all the things that were kind of, you know, floating around in my world from family and friends and teachers and everything. And, you know, we were kind of taught that, you know, those types of subtleties that you're describing in terms of, you know, looking down or, uh, you know, being shy or playing with your hair, that they were more shines of, you know, signs of personality. Right. Like in terms of displaying shyness or in terms of, you know, just not immediately warming up to people as opposed to it being a sign of actual discomfort. And I think that that's often maybe how, you know, parents justified their kids not wanting to perform certain behaviors mm -hmm. that they were expected to perform. And I think that, you know, you're able to, you know, approach your life and your nieces, as you just described, in this, you know, ultra, you know, sensitive and respectful way, because it's a topic you think of often, and it's a world you live in. Um, but I, I feel like many children are conditioned to feel that an appropriate greeting for a friend or family member, regardless of how close their relationship is or what they're experiencing that day, is to kiss them or hug them. Yeah. So, you know, how I, I guess, you know, what what has to be done culturally or like within an individual family unit or through the conversations that we have with our children for them to understand that that's, you know, not necessarily an appropriate greeting or an expected greeting. And for our family members to not get upset if our children choose to avoid those types of greetings. And that's sort of the ideal is we, we don't want our family members to be upset about it. Where I've sort of landed because of the conversation I have with families all the time, you know, we'll discuss, you know, not forcing a child to hug or kiss a relative and, and a parent will say to me, but, you know, my mother or my sister or, you know, this elderly relative, that's, they don't understand and, and they're going to be very, very upset. And so I think there are a couple of things there. One of them is that you can... If you know, for example, that there's a gathering coming up, which oftentimes we do if we're having family over, say, for, you know, Christmas or Hanukkah or, you know, a family holiday, um, is you can call or email ahead of time and you can, you know, say to them, listen, 
you know, something that we feel is really important for our child to understand is that people have boundaries around their bodies when it comes to, you know, showing affection, giving hugs and kisses. And it's really important to us that they understand this. And so when you see them, if you could please ask, or you could please, you know, pay attention to these you know, different cues before you hug them or kiss them. They may not want to hug or kiss you right away. Um, and that's nothing personal. It's not that they don't love you, um, but we feel it's important not to force the issue. And sometimes just having that conversation or having a couple conversations like that ahead of time is enough so that, you know, the your relative doesn't walk into the situation, you know, all excited and anticipating this hug or this kiss and then having to sort of, navigate their own disappointment when it doesn't happen because oftentimes when we're disappointed you know we're not in the best headspace we're just like oh man um and if we don't understand why we're not being hugged or kissed and why the child's not being you know made to greet us quote unquote politely we may interpret it as something that it's not but then there are some times when you're going to have a relative who is you know, deeply entrenched in their belief that the child should hug you. And that can sometimes go back to beliefs around, yeah, you know, it, that's a way of showing respect. You know, I'm older, they're younger, they should greet me in the way that I want to be greeted. Um, and that's a point where I think as, as a parent or a caregiver, um, you sometimes have to make a decision about who you're there to support ultimately. Um, and I'll say like, it's, it's hard, but ultimately we can't make other people, we can't control the way other people feel and we can't control the way other people react. So I'm like, you may need to prepare yourself for the fact that someone in your family may not be okay with this. Um, but as a parent, as parents, we're there to support our children and as parents, we are there to raise our children in the best way that we know how. And if we know that it's not beneficial for our children and that it may be inadvertently teaching our children some problematic lessons around consent and boundaries and bodies to make them hug or kiss someone when they don't want to, then we can also say, you know what? I love you. I'm really sorry that you're upset and I'm sorry that you don't understand. Um, I'm happy to talk with you about this further but this is the decision and I'm not going to make my child hug you or kiss you if they don't want to. Um, and I'm sorry if that disappoints you, but this is what's happening or this is what's not happening basically. Um, and then it's, like, yeah. yeah, sorry. sorry. And then I was, I was just going to say yeah. that, you know, I, based on just the comment you were just saying is that, you know, I do feel that kids get this. You know, when you talk to kids about consent, it's like they they understand this concept from the get go and that this is really more a conversation about adults feeling uncomfortable and feeling rejected if, you know, if children don't want to express their affection or have a greeting through, you know, hugging or kissing. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I do, you know, I also, my, as I said, my son's only two, but we've already started from a very young age discussing consent and in detail and on a daily basis and in almost every single situation that, that we find ourselves in. But I find myself having to constantly advocate for him. And I also find myself getting, making all the people that are in my life that I love that see him regularly 
uh, feel you know very uncomfortable and judged on a regular basis. And even if I approach it from a very you know loving perspective, they still feel that you know, for some reason that you know they, that rejected when a two year old chooses not to hug them one day. Absolutely. And yeah, and you know like even you know with my my own parents that they'll come into the house and my son absolutely adores them and probably you know loves them more than he loves me most days. But, you know, there are some days that he doesn't feel like being physically touched and they'll walk in and say, you know, is it okay if I give you a hug and he'll say no. And then their automatic response is, "Oh, why not? Don't you love us?" And it becomes, you know, a guilt trip. And then I'll end up having a conversation with them afterwards about how, you know, how inappropriate that it was and, you know, different ways to respond to it. Right. Except they, it's like it never actually clicks because I think that they're actually being authentic in that moment because they genuinely feel hurt. And I, I, you know, it's not my responsibility to start, you know, parenting my parents. Right, right, (laughs) because you already have someone that you need to be parenting. Um, And that's... But I also don't want my parents to be hurt all the time. No, and and that's, and I mean, and that's tough because, yeah, I'm sure, like most of us, you also love your parents. Um, And I mean, there's a point at which you, you know, you can also say, you know what? I've let you know how I feel about this. It isn't personal. Um, I understand that your feelings are hurt, um, but you're going to have to find a way to deal with that. I can't talk to you about this anymore. Um, And is this a conversation that you would have in front of your child so that your child knew you were advocating for them? Or would it be something you'd speak to them about separately afterwards? I think it probably depends on the people involved and what the specific situation is. I wouldn't say that it's a conversation that I would say you absolutely need to take this out of the room and the child can't hear it. Um, Particularly if it's calm and civil. um, And sometimes it is just, you know, a two minute conversations. I don't think it's bad for a child to hear that you're standing up for them. Um, Sometimes if it's, you know, getting tense and angry, that may not be something that you want to do in front of your child, or it's just going to be a very long in-depth conversation. That may be something that you want to do later on. And that's also another option is you can also say, you know, to your parents, like, look, if you're, you know, I'm not going to change my mind, but if you're really upset and you need to vent, or there are things that you need to express, or there are questions you have for me, you know, why don't we talk later and then try to actually together establish a time and a place where you can sit down and have a conversation about it. Um, Because sometimes also with people is, you know, and when you think about grandparents, you know, often we're talking about people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who have lived with certain social conventions their entire lives. And I think the longer you've lived with something as the norm, the harder it can be sometimes to switch your thinking, um, especially if you've never been forced to interrogate it before. And so, you know, if you spent your whole life sort of operating with one set of rules and you just sort of now are at the place where you take for granted that this is the quote unquote right way to behave, um, that, you know, yeah, your grandkids should hug you when you ask for a hug. If somebody loves you, they should hug you when you ask for a hug. And therefore, in your head or in their head, what it means is if someone says no to a hug, it means they don't, they don't love me. It can be hard to just suddenly in the moment undo, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years of that as your reality. 
And so sometimes, yeah, sitting down and having, you know, a calmer conversation where you can sort of talk more in depth about where you're coming from and they can talk more in depth about where they're coming from. Uh, sometimes that can be helpful. And that may not be a conversation you want to have in front of your kid because it just might be real boring for them. Right. Yeah, no, I, I do find it interesting that it's, you know, it's almost as if people have been taught that they should only be intervening if there's an extreme situation. Exactly. Right? It's like, it's, you know, it's like we've been kind of, you know, conditioned to believe that unless a child is like screaming or crying, that, you know, it means that they're comfortable. Or, you know, it, when we bring it back to the a dog, that unless a dog is a growling or barking or showing their teeth, that it means that they're happy or comfortable. And, you know, there's so many different shades of gray, you know, in, in between those extremes. And I just feel like many parents and dog owners feel that their, you know, their dogs or their kids, you know, can advocate for themselves or would you know, it would express discomfort if, you know, if they didn't want that physical yeah. touch happening. And I think it's, it's, although I'm sure people don't see it in this way, it's almost as though we treat pets and children as possessions because I think sometimes, exactly. and not in a, not in a, not in a malevolent way and not with ill intent. I think sometimes adults think, you know, here's this child that I love or right. possessions to, can be highly prized. Yeah. Right. You know, um, they're adorable and wonderful. And when I see them and when I interact with them and when I get hugs from them, it makes me feel good. Um, and therefore, unless they are in distress, it doesn't really matter how they feel it. I want, you know, I want my hug from my grandson because it makes me feel good and they'll be fine because if they're not fine they'll cry and they'll kick up a fuss and I think it's similar with with dogs and other pets it's well okay the dog isn't whimpering the dog isn't biting me the dog isn't like actively running away so clearly right, he must be okay the dog that. is fine like I'm not actively hurting it but I think what we inevitably can teach kids when we do that is that when it comes to shared affection and sharing affectionate touch, that the person who has more power gets their needs met and the other person just kind of has to deal with it. And then, you know, when children become older, when they're teenagers, when they're young adults and they're having romantic and sexual relationships, and we say things, like we say things to, for example, girls we try to socialize girls to you know say no if something is happening that makes you feel uncomfortable but if that girl when she was a child was forced to hug people when she didn't want to what she's been taught is but it doesn't matter what i want it matters what it it mattered what the grown up wanted because they were a grown up and i was a kid so what even is my own desire in all of this and i think for boys and not to imply that all relationships are heterosexual because they certainly are not but I think for children who are socialized as boys they can see that and then when they get older and we unfortunately live in a patriarchal society that reinforces to boys that they you know they have power or they're the powerful person certainly in heterosexual dynamics that okay well now I have the power so now it's my needs that matter and it doesn't matter what my partner needs because when I was a kid 
and I wasn't the person who had power. The person who had power got what they wanted. Yeah, and I mean, the conversation around consent when I was growing up, like in the, you know, late 80s, was, you know, a no means no sort of Mm -hmm. approach, which was that, you know, it was your responsibility if you were uncomfortable in a situation to have to have the confidence and wherewithal in that moment to say no, as opposed to it being the other participants responsibility to be able to read all of the countless signs that you've probably given through body language Mm -hmm. and other comments that you've made in advance. You know, and even still in the legal system is that like, if you haven't said no, then technically you've offered consent. So, you know, I, I do think that obviously this, this com- we could have this conversation for hours because it, as you were saying, that whoever's in the position of power ultimately gets what they want is true in every single aspect of our lives from personal relationships to employees to, you know, you know, governments like, you know, that, that that's the case on every level. But I guess what 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 you're saying is that at a very young age that we should be having these conversations with our kids on an ongoing basis to allow them to, you know, be able to read all of these subtle signs and read all of this body language and learn how to be sensitive and observant as opposed to forcing the other person to have to aggressively protect themselves. Absolutely. A lot of the consent educators that I really admire and that I pull a lot of my work from really talk about, you know, when we're talking about sharing experiences that are meant to be pleasurable. And that certainly extends far beyond um, sexually pleasurable. You know, something like sharing a hug between family members is meant to be pleasurable. They really do talk about it as sharing an experience rather than a give and take, rather than a, you give me a hug, or I'm going to give you a hug. It's, we want to, you know, so when you think about grandparent and grandchild, if we want to share a hug, then we both need to come to that experience, you know, voluntarily because we want to, because we both want that same thing. Because I do love you and you do love me. And in this moment, the way that we want to show that love to each other is by sharing this experience um, in the same way you might share a meal with someone that you love. Um, we don't think of it as here, I'm going to push some food at you. I'm going to give you some food and then you're going to give me some food. And, um, yeah. And now we care about each other. It's, you know, there is food. Let us share it. Um, but then again, we come back to the issue with sometimes even with food. It's well, I, I, I'm okay. I don't, I don't want that food. It's like, no, eat it, please. Um, well, and again, we're going back to the idea of politeness is, you know, again, like we were kind of all taught that when we go to someone's house as a guest, mm-hmm. that it is impolite to refuse anything that's offered to us. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like saying, and, and, and we, we sort of imbue these meanings into refusals that don't exist. Um, you know, there are certain foods that I just don't like, and I've never liked them. I don't like mushrooms. I just don't. Um, and yeah, there is this implication that, you know, if I went to someone's house and they made a beautiful mushroom dish, that basically what I'm saying is you're a bad cook and I am upset with you for somehow not intuiting that I don't like mushrooms and never have. And now I'm mad at you when all it is, is I'm like, I literally just don't like mushrooms. Like, (laughs) like you're one. Like I'm not offended. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not offended. Sounds great. Um, I'm not angry at you. You didn't do anything wrong. 
I'm not judging you for making mushrooms. I'm not judging you for liking mushrooms. I'm not judging you for not knowing I don't like mushrooms. Um, and yet, you know, sometimes that can be interpreted as really rude, but how lovely would it feel to be able to go to somebody's house for dinner? And, you know, I think, you know, I'm lucky to have some friends like this who a or they, they either ask before you come over, you know, do you have any dietary restrictions or preferences? Or they might say, I'm thinking of making this. How do you feel about that? And, you know, if you say like, oh, I'm not so much into mushrooms, they'll say, oh, okay, no problem. I won't make mushrooms. Or you get there and there's mushrooms and you say to them, oh, like, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Not so much into mushrooms. And they're just cool about it. It's so relaxing and awesome. Yeah, it's true. And the the friends and family members that you have in your life that you're able to have that sort of, you know, natural and authentic and honest relationship with are the ones that you end up cherishing the most. Absolutely. And you can cultivate a real intimacy there. So going back to, you know, how do you talk to your family members who may not understand is sometimes, and again, it can, you know, take several conversations, you know, gently reminding them that what you know, you're building a relationship with your grandkids, with your nieces, your nephews, your cousins, whoever. Um, and that, yes, you may be disappointed right now in this moment, but in the long term, every time you accept, you know, your grandson, when you you know, when your grandson says, I don't want to give you a hug right now or no, and you accept that, you're building trust you're building intimacy and you're making yourself into a person that your grandson knows that he can be himself around. And that's one of the greatest gifts ever. Um, You know, and I think about when I hear people talk about their grandparents or other family members who are important to them um, as adults, and they always talk about the people where they could just really be themselves, their their authentic selves. Um, You know, I don't often hear people talk about, well, you know, I had this relative who forced me to kiss them on the cheek every time I saw them. Like, I hear people talk about those relatives and it's usually with a tinge of resentment. Like, ugh. Right, those aren't ever fond memories. Yeah, it's always this kind of like beleaguered kind of, yeah. I We all have like that aunt or that grandparent who would like come and squeeze you too hard and you would just kind of have to sit there and take it. Like those aren't fond memories because again, being touched when you don't want to be touched doesn't feel good. It just doesn't. Ever. Yeah, ever. It like never in, in feels any situation. good. And it doesn't feel good to any of us, which is why sometimes it does baffle me a little bit that some people are so obstinate about about this issue or with kids and like do you like being hugged when you don't want to be hugged yeah but there's there's this really strange disconnect it's like adults don't look at children as being human until they reach a certain age and there are so many things that people do in front of children or expect of children that they would never you know, do themselves, you know, like even obviously the, the physical touch one is, is a big one, but all the time people have conversations about their children in front of their children as if they're not listening. Yeah. You know, like, could you imagine being in a social situation and just starting to talk about one of your other friends in front of them as if they weren't sitting at the table? (laughs) It's it's just so strange to me. It's yeah. It's, and it's, yeah, I think people sometimes make the mistake of thinking that because 
children don't have as sophisticated a vocabulary that they don't have the same level of comprehension, which they may not understand every single word you're saying, but they get the gist of it. Like they can hear you and they can largely understand you. Um, and I think we make the mistake of thinking that because a child may not be able to um, sort of repeat that conversation to somebody else, you're like, oh, they didn't get it. They weren't listening. I'm like, no, they're listening. And they probably get a good 70 to 90% of what you're saying. Right. And if it's in, even if at the moment they only get 70, 90% of it, it becomes part of, you know, their experience in their memory bank. And as they get older, they can continue to revisit those conversations and process them as they develop. So, yeah, like you, this is a human being in the room. Um, yeah. Just be aware. Um, something, you know, you had mentioned earlier that you often use, you know, dogs or animals as a way of explaining mm -hmm. to, to children about consent and teaching consent. And it was something I'm really passionate about also is educating children how to safely approach unknown dogs. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it is great to see that parents are teaching their kids to ask for permission to, to pet a dog before approaching. But the missing piece for me is that they also have to learn that sometimes the answer will be no and, and that's okay and needs to be respected. Yes. And, you know, I know that this might kind of sound like an odd question, but do you find in your work that kids are learning the appropriate questions to ask, but they're ill prepared to deal with the response if it contradicts with their expectations? So something I teach in my workshops, I have one coming up next Sunday, actually, when I work with parents around teaching kids about consent. A major part of the workshop is we talk about dealing with tough emotions, giving kids um, a vocabulary to express their tough emotions, letting children sort of sit in and process those difficult emotions because you're absolutely right. Part of practicing consent, at least part of the, the asking piece and the permission-seeking piece, is that you have, to be, you have to be prepared that the answer might be no. Um, right. My, my fear is that kids will, you know, get all of this incredible information, but that they'll stop asking if they're repeatedly disappointed. And so what we talk about is, you know, children, especially young children, um, oftentimes when they're disappointed, they're frustrated, they're sad, they're mad, like they will let you know, and they will, you know, they will cry and they will have things to say about it. And, you know, I talk to parents about how we can validate those feelings. It doesn't mean validating all their behavior. Like if they're throwing things and biting and whatnot, you know, that's not okay. But what you can say is, you know what? I like, I see you're really upset right now. I see you're really angry right now. I see you're really frustrated right now. And I understand why you're frustrated. And it's okay that you feel this way. Um, I think something else that we tend to do in our, in our culture is that we... Um, yeah, we tend to always want, we always want to be happy. And when we're not happy, we act as though there's something wrong. And I think we have a tendency, especially to do that with children. You know, if they're upset, we sort of try to rush them towards being happy, feeling better. And, you know, I have to admit that I've been guilty of this myself as a parent because it also hurts when your child is hurting. But I think what is so valuable is if children learn when they're young that feeling disappointed when you don't get what you want is normal. Um, 
and that that's part of being a human and that those are feelings that, you know, we feel they're unpleasant, but then they go away. Um, helps them manage things like, oh, I really want to pet that dog. And the owner says no. And it's like, you can totally feel disappointed about that. And that's okay. But just because you feel disappointed, that doesn't mean that you get to do what you want to do. Disappointment isn't a thing that you need to avoid feeling. You right. just like truthfully, there aren't any feelings that you should have to avoid. And I think that it's our culture, as you were just saying, that parents always want to solve negative emotions. Yeah, we want to avoid negative emotions. And like, and then again, what happens is if we don't learn that we are able to cope with them and we don't, we don't learn that those emotions are normal, that, yeah, you know, in the moment it sucks, but it doesn't last, we grow up constantly trying to avoid feeling that way because it's scary to us. Um, we're like, oh my God, like here's this feeling of disappointment. Oh my gosh, like what is happening? Um, and again, that's how we wind up with a culture where people feel that it's preferable to sort of push someone else's boundaries so that they can avoid their own feelings of frustration or disappointment or rejection or embarrassment or what have you, um, instead of just saying, yeah, if this doesn't go the way I want, I'm not going to feel good for a while. But then I'll like, you know, I'll do what I need to do. I'll cry. I'll pout. I'll journal about it. I'll go for a walk. I'll whatever, whatever. You know, I have all of these tools that I've built up in my toolbox since childhood of how I actually cope when I'm not feeling great. And I'll do that. And then I'll feel okay. Um, do you yeah. do you find that the conversation around consent changes when you're speaking to different genders? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I mean, this is not, you know, to a person and there are definitely exceptions all over. I find that I get more pushback from cisgender men than people of any other gender, which is not to say that I always get pushback from cisgender men, but yeah, more cisgender men push back at me on this than I would say people of other genders, um, which makes sense to me because for a lot of cisgender men, this dynamic of consent constitutes a kind of a loss for them because it means they can't sort of, it, it's basically me saying it's not okay for you to go through life just treating other people's bodies like your property or like interesting things that you get to interact with however you want. Um, right. This conversation, you know, that's become, um, you know, I guess I, I hate to use the word popular, although it has become more popular, but that, you know, now that it's risen to the forefront and become more mainstream and that, you know, women are starting to speak, you know, speak more freely mm -hmm. is, you know, the, the, the people in our culture that are being expected to change their behavior the most are cisgender, are cisgender men. men. Yeah. Um, and you know, yes. And I can imagine how that would make you uncomfortable when there's like, you know, 400 plus years of history within this continent of being able to behave a specific. And I think also cisgender men are not like, tr I think it's changing, but I think historically, again, have not been given the tools to deal with certain emotions. So for example, um, 
cisgender men are not socialized to be vulnerable. And seeking consent by its very nature is a vulnerable act because of what we're talking about, because someone might say no to you and then you might feel hurt. Um, and yeah, you think about the basic messaging that you're, you hear even in like a kindergarten playground about how, you know, boys don't cry or how you should just suck it up or, you yeah. know, when, and even during puberty, like when, when boys start starting to, you know, be interested in sex, they're told that, you know, you know, if, if you, if someone says no to you, then you just have to try, just harder. try harder. Yeah. Um, and not only with sex, with a lot of things, you know, in business, in, you know, in terms of sports, it's like, just keep pushing, just keep pushing, just keep pushing. Like if you give up, you're deficient. If you give up, you're weak, you're a failure. You're a failure. Um, you know, you're not going to get anything you want if you just accept no. And so, yeah. Or this notion of playing hard to get. Yeah. Or, you know, or, or how, like, I, I don't know anyone that has ever like played hard to get before. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I, I don't, like, I don't know a woman in my entire life that has ever told a man that she was uninterested in dating them in order to get them. To I don't her. think I'm capable of doing it. Like, I, and, and I'm not right. saying like, because I'm this amazing virtuous person, because I'm like, when I like someone, like, it's so ridiculously obvious and I can't control myself like I'm just like oh my god it's you wow okay um (laughs) and yeah and in my head I'm like whoa will you calm down but yeah that's just how I am when I like somebody um but again, yeah, that's what or, they're told you know, that you also do. like boys are told that like girls are mean to them in elementary school because they like them. Yeah. You know, like, there's just like all these really weird things that now that I really think about, you know. Oh, <laughs> is your son trying to get your attention? He is. Okay, well tell him we we won't be that much longer and okay. he can have you all to himself soon. Yeah, I'm not going to be that much longer. Um Yeah, so it's uh so in okay, a way before I, yeah before you run off yeah. I just want to there's one thing I want to do with you that I think will be a lot of fun. Okay. Um so I received an email from a client asking for advice obviously dog related advice and I'd like to know how you would respond to it if in this situation the dog was actually a child. Oh, okay. That's a good one. Okay. So here's the email. It says, hi, Ashley, I need your help. My dog absolutely loves socializing with other dogs. Unfortunately, we don't have any friends with young playful dogs, so we can't organize private play days. We have to go to the dog park regularly in order for him to get the social interaction that he craves. The problem is that my dog isn't comfortable with people he doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And whenever we go to dog parks, the other dog owners are constantly trying to pet him and play with him. Luckily, he's not aggressive, but he ends up spending half the time at the dog park nervously dodging advances from people reaching out to him as opposed to being able to play. So I guess, you know, I have a few questions. Are there places I can go to socialize my dog that aren't as busy as a dog park? Should I just stop going and deprive my dog of that playtime with other dogs? Or is there training I should be doing in order to get my dog to accept being pet by strangers? Ooh, okay. So, so I guess my question to you is, let's say you were working with parents that had a child that absolutely loved playing with other kids, but, you know, and they didn't have any other friends with, you know, kids in close age range, so they couldn't arrange private play dates. So they relied on going to kind of play groups or public parks. Right. And, and their kid got really nervous around adult strangers being in close proximity to them. Ooh. So, so how would you, like, what would you suggest in that situation? Okay. So see, I can think of some things I would suggest if it was a child. I'm not sure 
because they would translate to dogs. Um, so right. for example, so, um, so yeah. So what would you do if it was a child? So if it was a child, I might suggest going to something like reading time at the library because it's a chance to be around other children, but because it's a controlled activity, um, there isn't as much opportunity for the parents to get all up in other children's spaces um, because it's quiet and we're sitting and listening to the story. And then afterwards, what you can what you can do, because usually people are sort of packing up and taking their children out is, again, there's not as much opportunity for the other parents to kind of crowd around someone else's kid um, because they're kind of tending to their own kid. So activities like that might be something that I would suggest. And then there's still a chance for, you know, your child to sit with the other children um, and, and, you know, listen to the story together. I know at our local, li like at my branch library, we have, um, there's a Lego day. Um, and so the kids come and they play Legos together. And I find that, yeah, the parents aren't really in there with the other children as much just because it's a more structured activity. Um, so the parents if they are interacting with children, again, it's usually their own children because they're helping them assemble the Lego, but the children talk to each other a lot, um, which is nice for the kids. So that would be something I would suggest if it were a child. Right. Well, it's it's not so different, you know, if from a from a dog training perspective. Like I would first advise that they join some local online communities to maybe find people in their neighborhood that had dogs of similar age and temperament so they could arrange for private playdates in a more predictable and controlled environment. And then their dog wouldn't be, you know, subjected to being nervous every day because they would be able to give those people a heads up in advance. Uh, you know, the other thing you know, I would never suggest that they deprive their dog of being able to socialize and engage with other dogs because it's essential to their quality of life and development. But, you know, in terms of training, there are definitely confidence building exercises and counter conditioning strategies that can be implemented so they're more comfortable around strangers. But, you know, my goal would never be to force anyone to accept unwelcome touch. It would be you know, for them to learn how to feel comfortable in an environment, knowing that the humans in their life would advocate for them so that they're so that they would feel free to be able to socialize and play. Yeah. So so, you know, I guess it, it is a you know, it's a it's a similar idea, but it's it's really I, I guess it's more difficult with children because like if there is a child there, there's always going to be an adult with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And I've, I mean, I found with my son uh, when he was young, if we went to sometimes, like even sometimes if we went to a smaller park, and I mean, my son has always been very social, so I'm not sure if it was as much of an issue with him. But if we, when we went to smaller parks, I found there was a more consistent group of people who would be there. And sometimes if you have the consistent group of people, um, it's a little easier to sort of say to them, like, listen, um, my child is is shy and my child gets really nervous around strange grown-ups. Um, so nothing personal, just, you know, if you could just give him a little bit of space. And if you kind of have the same group of people around most of the time, at least it saves you from having to every single time you go to the park, have this conversation, have conversation. with a whole new group of people, you know, um, here in Toronto, you know, like if you're going to High Park to the big castle thing, that might be challenging because 
you know, when High Park is hopping, there are hundreds and hundreds of people there. Um, and you can't go around and have that conversation with like every single different grown up every time you're there. But if there's a little like park it with a little play structure, yeah, you probably find that um, at least on the weekdays, most of the time you're going to have, a, if not always exactly the same people, but there's probably like a core group of people who are always there. That are, yeah, and they also, you know, usually have the same routine and end up coming the same times of day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the one thing that we haven't mentioned at all is the work you do with sex ed school. Mm -hmm. And like, I absolutely love the social feed and videos and I, you know, I see them all the time and I share them constantly. And I was wondering if you could just, you know, tell everyone a little bit about what sex ed school is and what your involvement with them. Yeah. So sex ed school is a web series. It is aimed at kids between about nine and 12. Um, and right now in our first season, there are eight episodes and each episode explores a different topic, including our premiere episode which was on consent and so basically the concept is that uh, there's a classroom I'm one of two teachers and we have a group of students and we basically every episode explore the you know a, a, the different topic and we really tried when we were filming to let the children's questions and um, their curiosity and their knowledge guide um, sort of the direction of the episode. And so while the series is certainly designed such that children can watch it, um, my hope is that we'll also have parents, uh, teachers, other adults watch it because I think it's really, um, it, it's really illuminating how much children, A, already know and B, are capable of understanding. Um, and how responsive they are to the to the information. So yeah, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm one of the co-hosts and I was also a co-writer. So I helped to um, sort of write the episodes and the, the bits with the children, they're not scripted, um, but you know, our intro bits and whatnot were somewhat scripted and we certainly had a structure for each episode. So yeah, I, we helped um, write the structure. We have like amazing guests um on various episodes and yeah i'm really really proud of it so um and yeah we'll we'll yeah i'll link it in the description yes. but can you just uh tell us where we can find sex ed school and also where people can find you? yes um so you can find sex ed school at sexedschool.ca uh if you go to the website then there's a link to all the episodes you can find me i'm nadine thornhill everywhere i have my youtube channel nadine thornhill I'm at Nadine Thornhill on Instagram and Twitter. My website is nadinethornhill.com. And uh, if people want to email me, they can do it through the website or they can email me info at nadinethornhill.com. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. My today. pleasure. I really appreciate it. Okay. Go have fun with your Okay. Time. Thank you. <laughs> okay, bye. Have a Take good care. Time. I hope you feel better. Thank okay, you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Are you looking to add a dog to your family? For a limited time only, listeners of Baby Puppy will receive 10% off our unique mutt-making package. Let us help you find the right breed, energy level, and temperament for your household based on your experience, expectations, routine, and personality. We always say there's no such thing as the perfect dog, but there is definitely a perfect dog for you. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, child or dog related, email info at meetyourmutt.com. 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Meet Your Mutt or visit the website at www.meetyourmutt.com. Remember, this podcast is just a baby or puppy. And as they say, it takes a village. So please rate and review. Happy parenting. Baby Puppy is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Balin. Production assistance by Koji Nagata and theme song by Pink Distortion Music. (laughs) 